Isn't it going to be fun to memorize this chapter as we go through it? Well, that was an interesting reaction. (laughs) Okay, you've got your Bible. Let's put our hands on our Bibles and just pray over the Word of God. Lord, we... We declare that this is the inspired Word of God, and it's able to penetrate to the deepest parts of our soul and our spirit. It's able to mirror uh, who we are, and Lord, we are open to that today. We ask that you would speak to us, that you would reveal to us who we are so that we can align ourselves with who you want us to be. Give us the gift of repentance where we need that. Give us grace where we need that. Lord, would you enlighten our understanding as we look at the scripture. We pray your blessing on it and upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're going to start in Hebrews 10 and read the last few verses, and then we'll get into Hebrews 11. I just want to do that for context's sake. So Hebrews 10, starting in verse 36 says, you have need of endurance so that after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he is coming, he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now verse 38, chapter 10, now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition or to destruction but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is the title deed. It's the confirmation of things hoped for, things that are divinely guaranteed. It's the conviction of their reality. Faith understands as fact what cannot be seen or heard. I was at Oral Roberts University many, many years ago, And the dean of theology, Dr. Jim Buskirk, would say this, I know it in my knower. That's what faith is. You know it in your knower. You just know it's going to happen. You can't see it. You don't know how it's going to happen, but you know that you know that you know that you know. That's faith. Faith is having confidence in the power, wisdom, and goodness of God. It's believing in God's character, that he is who he says he is. It's believing in God's promises, that he will do what he says he will do. We demonstrate faith when we believe that God will fulfill his promises even before we see them begin to materialize. Look at verse 2. It says, For by it, by faith, the elders obtained a good testimony. The elders were the Old Testament saints, many of whom are mentioned in this chapter. They obtained a good report by their faith in God, not by their achievements and not by their personal holiness. It was by their faith that they obtained a good report. That means we can all do that too. They persisted in believing and obeying God even when that obedience did not make sense and even when it called for extreme sacrifice. And that's what we're seeing in in China right now. Verse 3 By faith we understand that the worlds or the ages were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith we understand that the ages, the worlds, the universe, eternity, that's what that word means. The beginning of time, it was all framed by the word of God. God did not take things that were already created 
and create different things. He spoke into nothingness and things were created. Framed is the Greek word katartizo. It means to arrange, set in order, adjust, repair, equip, complete, and prepare. So God created the world's eternity and the ages with just his words. We know from Genesis 1 that God spoke and it happened. He created with his words. And just as his words are creative, so our words are creative because we are created in his image. Order by our... They're repaired. They are prepared. They are equipped. They are set in order by our words. Good things and bad things are put into motion by the words that we speak. Now, a number of years ago, there was uh, an extreme teaching on the confession of our faith where we could say it and we could have it. Remember that? Name it, claim it, frame it. It's yours. Actually, there's some truth to that. And that, you know, a lot of these teachings that went to an extreme were truths that the enemy pushed to an extreme so that they would be rejected. But there is a lot of truth in in the fact that whatever we say does affect us and it affects our hearers. It says in Proverbs 18:21, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they who love it will eat the fruit of it. So our words produce life or death. They affect influence and frame not only our lives but the lives of everyone who hears us our words equip them for their intended purpose they encourage them to continue on in the faith what we say has the power to bless or to curse to encourage or discourage to heal and to wound when we open our mouths we minister either life or death now turn with me to psalm 33 just reflecting back on the fact that God spoke and it was done. Of course, we know from Genesis 1 that he spoke and there was light. He spoke and the heavens were formed. He, everything that took place took place by his spoken word. And it's confirmed again here in Psalm 33, starting in verse 6. It says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. It's the power of the word of the Lord. John 6, 30, in John 6, 63, Jesus said, The words I speak to you are spirit and they are life. So every time Jesus spoke, there was a release of life and a release of spirit. Now, we are called by his name. We are his disciples. And the same is true of us. Every word we speak is spirit and life. But if that life within us is contaminated, the living water that Jesus says flows out of us, if it's contaminated, then every word we speak will be contaminated spirit, contaminated life. It won't be healthy. It won't be pure. And so we need to make sure that what is within us is healed 
It's whole, it's pure, it's clean. Proverbs 10 verse 11 says, The mouth of the righteous is a well of life. So there's a well of life in us if we're walking righteously with the Lord. We need to make sure that what is within our inner wells, our hearts, our inner man is pure. Because Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So to purify our hearts, we need to repent of anything that would contaminate, like destructive anger, unforgiveness, bitterness, pride, criticism. need to repent from things like complaining, negativity. We also need to not only repent of sin, but we need to welcome and ask the Lord to heal the hurting places in our hearts, the wounded places in our souls that contaminate the living water. Because when we're still wounded, we're carrying hurts from the past, hurts from even childhood, hurts from this past summer, anything we've walked through that has been, that has been accumulating within, that pollutes the living water. And we act, react defensively. Rather than walking in a place of peace and joy and speaking life and health and strength to the people around us, we're speaking words of hurt and bitterness. So we need to allow the Lord to heal the hurts within as well. So that means we choose to forgive. We don't allow offenses to accumulate. Sin and wounds will show up in our words and our attitudes. So we need to be cleansed with the blood of Jesus, and we need to be healed by a revelation of God's fatherly love for us. That's what heals our inner man. It's knowing God's fatherly love. When we've developed intimacy with God and we commune with Him throughout the day, then the overflow of that abiding relationship will positively affect our conversations. We will speak words of life that edify, inspire, and refresh. Our words won't, will, won't bring attention to us. They will bring attention to the Lord and they will glorify Him. So back to Romans. Uh, I'm sorry, I did that before. Back to Hebrews 11. I think we're going to have to stay Romans here soon. So this chapter 11 describes how the fathers of our faith saw the land that God promised them, how they believed his promises, and how they perceived the invisible God. Their perception of him launched them into extravagant lifestyles of faith in the midst of circumstances that seemed to testify against the reality of God's promises. I want to say that again. Their perception of God launched them into extravagant lifestyles of faith, and may it also be said of us, in the midst of circumstances that seem to testify against the reality of God's promises. For us to be propelled into the same level of radical faith, we need a revelation of God. We can't just see Him distant and far off. We need to have a close, intimate walk with the Lord where we really see Him, where we perceive Him, where we have a close relationship. We need to know His heart, His priorities, His promises, and our place in Him. Let's read verse 4. So now we begin some of these uh, men, women of God. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, 
through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. Let's turn to that uh, story. It's in Genesis chapter 4. Let's read that. Genesis 4, we're going to read verses 1 through 7. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife. She conceived and bore Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering. But he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Cain knew what was right to do. And we, we understand that because of verse 7. If you do well, will you not be accepted? He knew what was the right thing to do, but that's not what he gave the Lord. That wasn't the sacrifice God required. Cain actually knew that God would want a, bla a blood sacrifice. Now, how we know that, we're not sure, except maybe Eve and Adam spoke to their sons and said it, there was a blood sacrifice required to clothe them after their sin. But Cain, even though he knew that God wanted a blood sacrifice, he gave a sacrifice and offering by the works of his hands. Abel offered God the blood and fat sacrifice that God required by killing the firstborn of his flock. God respected his offering. God did not respect Cain's offering. Abel gave what God required, and it was a foretaste, it was a foreshadowing of the blood sacrifice that Jesus himself would give, actually about 4,000 years later. God still wants a living sacrifice. God wants a body to live through, and that's who we are today. It says in Romans 12 verse 1, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present to God a living sacrifice. Your body should be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. That's your reasonable service. And so that's what God's looking for. He's really not working, looking for the work of our hands. If he calls us to do something, then we obediently do that, and that's pleasing to the Lord. But the sacrifice he wants is us, ourselves. How often do we refuse to obey something he's told us to do, and instead we try to offer him a sacrifice of the work of our hands? For instance, maybe he has called you to work in wind, or to be a reading buddy at Dean Highland, or to be a driver with Friends for Life, or to do any number of obedient things, and instead of doing that, you have offered a different sacrifice. Maybe you say, no, Lord, I really don't want to do that, but I'll put more money in the offering. But that's not what God's requiring. 
God's requiring us to do what he calls us to do. That's what it means to be a living sacrifice. God wants our obedience. He doesn't want good works to make up for our lack of obedience. Let's read on in Hebrews 11, verse 5. Let me just comment back in verse 4 when it says, Through it, Abel, being dead, still speaks. What that's referring to is that the blood sacrifice that Abel gave still speaks today because it foreshadowed the blood sacrifice of Jesus. All right, verse 5 says, By faith Enoch was translated so that he did not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. Enoch was the seventh from Adam. He was translated into heaven without dying because he pleased God. If you'll just turn to Jude quickly with me. Jude is uh, right before the book of Revelation. It's just one chapter. We're going to read verses 14 and 15. I think it's interesting that Enoch was way back so many thousands of years ago and yet he was so prophetic that he could speak of the second coming of Jesus already. So here's Jude 14. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these evil men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. This is the return of the Lord. To execute judgment on all to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. We know when Jesus returns, it's to, be, it's to judge. And so this is what Enoch is speaking about. Okay, now let's read about Enoch in Genesis chapter 5. We'll go back to the other end of the Bible. Genesis 5. We're going to read verses 21 through 24. Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. So that's his first child, Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and begot sons and daughters. And so all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Notice the description of Enoch in verses 22 and 24. Enoch walked with God. That would be a good inscription to put on our tombstones, wouldn't it? Peggy walked with God. Listen to some of Matthew Henry's commentary about Enoch. This is what Matthew Henry wrote. What is godliness but walking with God? The ungodly and profane are without God. They walk contrary to him. But the godly walk with God, which presupposes reconciliation to God. It includes the totality of a godly, righteous, and sober life. To walk with God is to set God always before us, living with the knowledge that he is always watching. It is to live a life of communion with God. It is to make God's word our rule, and his glory our goal in all of our actions. It is to try in everything to please God, and in nothing to offend him. 
It is to comply with his will, to concur with his designs, and to be workers together with him. Enoch was entirely dead to this world. He did not only walk after God, as good men do, but he walked with God as if he were in heaven already. The business of Enoch's life, his constant care and walk, was to walk with God. While others lived to themselves and the world, he lived to God. It was the joy of his life. Communion with God was to him better than life itself, and so God took him. What a challenge, hey? That's what it means to walk with God. Let's move on. Verse 6, Hebrews 11, verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Without faith, without trusting in God, without believing in his goodness and his love and his wisdom, it is absolutely impossible to please him. He who comes to God must believe. To please him, we must believe that he is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he will do. How can we trust God with our eternal future if we cannot trust him with tomorrow? I think that's really key because we all trust God to take us to heaven and we'll live eternally with him. But what about tomorrow? What about next week? What about the way we die? What about when we die? What about when we are too old to take care of ourselves? Do we trust God then? That's what real faith is. He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, not just a rewarder of those who seek him. He rewards those who diligently seek him. That means to carefully seek him, to fervently and persistently seek him. Deuteronomy 6, 17 says, You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. So obedience is part of seeking God. Deuteronomy 28, verse 1 says, If you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. Psalm 119, verse 4 says, You have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. So we're to be diligent and careful as we walk with God in obedience. We are to seek him and pursue him fervently and wisely. So some of us may need to repent of laziness, complacency, disobedience, so that we can press in earnestly after God. You know, it's easy in a comfortable society to just let down your armor, to just get lax, I remember years ago, in, 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 my, in my family, my mother has five children, and in our family, three of us spent a number of years on foreign mission fields. And one year, my younger sister and I were home at the same time. I don't remember why, because it was unusual that we were home at the same time, but of course, being home, we were at mother's house. And we went together to HEB, and she was from Russia, and I was from Israel. And the HEBs here are uh, overwhelming. 
when you're from a foreign land. And so we both walked in and we both stood there. And we didn't know what to do. We didn't know where to go. We didn't know what aisles to go to. And she was about to cry. And she said, I just want to go home. She said, you know, here in America, it is so easy. You can just backslide because you don't have to have a quiet time every day. You don't have to hear from God every day. And it's too easy to just get lax. She said, I'm ready to get back to the mission field where it's hard because it presses me to seek God diligently every day. And, you know, when we're in a more comfortable environment, we have to stir ourselves up. We can't trust the environment to stir us up. Oh, it probably will before too long. But we need to stir ourselves up to diligently seek God, to carefully seek the Lord and obey Him, to be fervent in our walk with Him, to be pressers after the things that matter to our King. Turn with me to uh, Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3. Going to read verses 12 into verse 15. Not that I have already attained. The Apostle Paul is talking about attaining to a place of righteousness, a place of power of knowing the Lord's resurrection, fellowship with his sufferings and being conformed to his death. He said, I have not already attained that. I'm not already perfected, but I press on. And that word press in Greek means to pursue, to follow after, to press forward, even to persecute. Okay, so he says, I press on, I'm pressing forward, I'm following after passionately that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting the things that are behind and reaching forward to those things that are ahead, I press, I pursue, I'm diligent toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind or this attitude. Paul was pursuing God with every ounce of his energy, just as he persecuted the church before his conversion. He pursued knowing Jesus with the same passion that he had before he was saved. And I want to remind you of Paul, before he was saved, his name was Saul, and in Acts chapter 8 it says, verse 3, that Saul made havoc of the church. He entered every house, and he committed men and women to prison. But imprisoning and killing the believers in Jerusalem wasn't enough for Saul. So he went to the chief priest and he said, write me letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that I can go there and, and arrest all the believers, all those who are of the way, which is what they call it, the believers in Jesus, and I'm going to bring them to the prisons of Jerusalem. Write me letters like that. And then it begins in Acts 9. It says he's breathing out murders and threats against the disciples of Jesus. And he's on his way to Damascus to imprison all the believers in Damascus when the Spirit of God, when Jesus has an encounter with him on the road, and of course that leads to his salvation and to his name change. 
So basically what happened here is Paul was passionate and pressing forward to destroy the church. And that's that word to press. And in its furthest um, expression, it means to persecute. And Paul was pressing to the point of persecuting the church. And now let's look at him. In so many words, years later, he said, I persecuted the church with all my energy, with all my passion. And now as Jesus' disciple and a trophy of his grace, I press forward to lay hold of Christ's grip on me with that same passion. I am pressing like persecuting. I am pressing toward the goal of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That's the kind of fervent passion that Paul had. And that's what we need to have. And that's really the only thing that's going to get us through as times get rougher. That's the faith that the Lord loves. And that's what grabs his attention when everything in us is pressing toward the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So like Paul, we press forward with passion. We don't slacken our efforts. We don't give up in weariness. We don't get distracted. We don't get discouraged. We don't take a break. No, we push toward the goal of knowing Jesus and to walk with God like Enoch did. We are pressers. We're today's saints. We believe that God is and that he will reward those who diligently seek him. May that be true of us. And I've got a, one more minute, and I want to read to you again part of that definition of Enoch because I really want it to get in our spirits. The godly walk with God, which pre presupposes reconciliation to God. It includes the totality of a godly, righteous, and sober life. To walk with God is to set God always before us, living with the knowledge that he's always watching. It is to live a life of communion with God, to make God's word our rule and his glory our goal in all of our actions. It is to try in everything to please God and in nothing to offend him. It is to comply with his will, to concur with his designs, and to be co-workers with him. The business of our lives, like Enoch's, our constant care and work, should be and will be to walk with God. And while others live to themselves and the world, we will live to God. He is the joy of our lives. And communion with God will be to us better than life itself. Let's pray. Lord, would you establish us in this place of godliness, righteousness, and holiness. Would you align us with your priorities, with your heart, our faith. May we be alert to what you are doing in the world, what you're doing in our city, what you're doing in our lives, and walk with you hand in hand. May your footsteps be our pathway. In Jesus' name, amen.